This episode of Standard Orbit is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for your tablet, smartphone, and desktop. Support the show and get a free audiobook of your choice by visiting audibletrial.com slash trekfm. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry, and you're listening to Trek FM. Follow Standard Orbit, Mr. Chekhov, and take us in. Hi, sir. Is the word of Landru. Joy to you, friends, and thanks for joining us here in Standard Orbit, Trek FM's dedicated show to the original Star Trek series. My name is Drew, or Landru, and this is my co-host Mike from Commentary Trek Stars. Hello. Hey, Mike. Hey. Well, today we're going to get uh, kind of serious. Uh, we lost another. Uh, we lost another Star Trek creator recently. And uh, this time it was the composer of Star Trek's two and three Academy Award winner, James Horner. Yeah. Um, again, I mean, it seems like this year has been really terrible for Star Trek, uh, especially Star Trek two. And um, yeah, uh, James Horner, you know, while a, a you know, just a a composer you know not not like a a a, you know writer someone who like came up with you know huge concepts for star trek he definitely had a huge impact on star trek you know his score for for star trek 2 is uh very noteworthy and had a lot to do with why that movie works Mm -hmm. in my opinion and also you know he had a huge influence on on the world of film in general uh, with his other scores, you know, he's won a couple Oscars. He's been nominated for a dozen Oscars, and um, we figured that we should uh, make note of of him and his contribution to Star Trek and movies on the whole. Yes, the the score to Rathacon is is incredible. Um, unfortunately, I don't think the the score to Star Trek Three is is as memorable like I, I couldn't hum it for you right now and it's not on apple music so i wasn't able to refresh my memory with it unfortunately i mean they're they're both memorable i mean i think star trek 2 is a lot better but then again i think a lot of that has to do with you know what he was working with you know obviously mm-hmm. if you're writing music for some of the best scenes in movie history you know you you have more you know just like an actor you know i mean it's it's there's there's sort of a weird thing where you know i mean you always see like the best actor nominees come from the best picture nominees and you know i i used to always think like well why what are the odds of the best performance and the best script and the best editing and all this stuff coming in the best movie doesn't that seem strange to you it's strange but you know i think there is something to be said for stepping up your game when you have something to work with. And I think lots of times terrible performances come from the fact that they have terrible scripts and you don't know what you're supposed to be doing, you know? Mm -hmm. Whereas, like, if you're writing music for a scene which has an extreme amount of tension, you're going to know how to play that out beat for beat. You know, like, rhythmically, the the scene is working you know, in the same way that uh, the music should be working. So you can bring that to it. Whereas, like, uh, let's say on a more directionless movie, it's going to be harder to come up with 
good music. Does that make mm-hmm. sense? So you're saying that Star Trek Two is good, and James Horner was good scoring it because it was good. I'm saying that it helped for sure. Yes, and I agree. Uh, any good soundtrack uh, uh, evokes the imagery of of the scene, even if like uh, they're not in order. Like the the soundtracks that you get for Star Trek Two are not in any particular order. But if you listen to it and you've seen the movie enough times, your mind jumps back and forth between the scenes because whether or not you're paying attention to the music you know it's there subconsciously and so if you hear the music you're like you you can get it i like that uh, when i was flipping through the star trek 2 soundtrack there uh there are a lot of themes i really like uh uh, the themes uh leitmotifs uh you know like john williams uses like oh there's leia let's play her you know peter and the wolf kind of you know everybody's got their own instrument uh, you know, Khan has his own kind of music, and and Kirk and the Enterprise have their own kind of music, and uh, it really helps when you're listening to it to to imagine the movie because it's got the you know well obviously Khan's on screen at this point because here's his kind of bombastic, kind of crazy sounding music. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. You know, and and there's certain I mean, you talk about like scenes or whatever and and being able to uh, evoke the imagery in that scene um when you're listening to the music and i mean i think that that's definitely true of star trek 2 you know i mean there's a few pieces of music in that movie which are just like insanely good and the way that they're broken down on the soundtrack even kind of uh mirrors the way that that uh the scenes play out in the movie in terms of like the turns and everything like that. I mean, there's like a one, the one sequence where the Reliant first attacks the enterprise Mm -hmm. and it starts off with, you know, that, that section where basically the enterprise is getting its ass kicked by the Reliant, you know, and that piece of music is, so good and you're just like oh my god and it just has this sense of desperation and actually i think that piece of music is where um we were kind of talking about this on the other side of the orbit where it is very similar to something that he would do later on in aliens mm-hmm. like um and that's that's something that that we were talking about you know and i think lots of people talk about how james horner tends to recycle his his music cues and and put them in other, other places. But, um, that sequence is awesome. And then it ends basically when Kirk finds out that Khan is the guy who is attacking him, you know, and then it, it becomes silent through their conversation. And then when Kirk starts devising his plan to retaliate, there's another piece of music which starts up. And that music is very different from the first piece of music that we just heard, and yet it very much reflects what's going on now in the story, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's like if you, like on, on the soundtrack, you know, you'd have those two pieces of music back to back, and it played out very similarly to what was going on on screen. And you can hear it in the music. Like the first one, it's very much sort of like, 
uh, def- defeatist and and everything and dark and like oh my god this is you know terrible something terrible is happening, and then the second piece of music it's like hey oh we're back we're back, <laughs> um, and then also the other piece of music which to me just really stands out is the big long sequence at the end in the climactic battle with the Mutara Nebula. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. I think that piece is like eight and a half minutes long on the soundtrack. Yeah, it's great. So it's it's interesting that Star Trek II was his first like major film mm-hmm. uh, that that he composed. Uh, so, I mean, that may be where all of his I wouldn't say all of his best work, but I mean, when you come out of the gate swinging like that, you're gonna want to uh, you're gonna want to keep going with that, even if it is you know eerily similar. And I I did like. Uh, I didn't get to, but I was randomly uh, going through like the Aliens and the Titanic soundtrack. And there were some times where I was like, I could probably put together a playlist. And unless you were really, really familiar with the soundtracks, you wouldn't be able to tell which one's which, which isn't necessarily bad. He's got his style. Yeah, certainly he's he's got his style. And, you know, he knows what's appropriate for different movies. And he's not necessarily going to do the same thing for Star Trek Two that he did for Forty Eight Hours, but you know, once he has something in his bag of tricks, he doesn't necessarily let it go. He yeah, just knows the right time to pull it out. It's never that his his soundtracks are, are inappropriate. Like, you know, you get the idea that the Titanic is flying through the air, or you know, that that Avatar is is flying around in a nebula or anything. Yeah. Uh, he he does keep he keeps things to himself but he's got that kind of rhythm that yeah. that is is unique to him that he i mean and there's there's no problem with that really uh, i've i've had people i heard people the other day complaining like oh did you hear that new megan trainer single sounds just like her other music yeah she's an old fashioned kind of swing person her music's going to sound similar i mean she's not uh you know taylor swift where each each single is a completely different genre almost yeah yeah horner has his thing and he adapted it to every movie that he did and he did tons and tons and tons and tons and tons of movies yeah and you talk about how star trek 2 was his first and and that's kind of interesting you know i mean i don't know the the history behind it you know for sure or anything like that but knowing kind of the history of star trek 2 it kind of makes sense that this would be his first big movie because Star Trek II seemed to be the movie where they were like, let's do this cheap. Let's find talent, young talent, that other people haven't discovered yet, and let's get them to make this movie. And then when it comes out and it ends up being one of the best movies ever made, all those other people are going to get work and, you know... It's kind of like, kind of like what happens in in baseball, Moneyball, where the Oakland A's find the talent, and you know they put together this young team of nobodies, and they you know start winning some pennants, and then their contracts are up, and the Yankees swoop in and steal all their all their people because the Yankees are like, here's a hundred million dollars, go win us some baseball mm-hmm. games. Well, that. That's great. It says right here on on Wikipedia that uh, uh, Nicholas Meyer quipped that Horner had been hired because the studio couldn't afford to use the first film's composer, Jerry Goldsmith, again. Yeah. But by the time that Meyer returned to the franchise in Star Trek VI, the director found that he couldn't afford Horner either. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and then in, in Star Trek Six, they get Cliff Eidelman, who is also awesome. I mean, that score for Star Trek Six is amazing. Interestingly, Eidelman's previous project before doing Star Trek Six was that he did a compilation of music from the first five films. Right. So he'd studied all those soundtracks. And then said, I'm going to do something which doesn't sound anything like exactly. any of those at all. He was quoted as saying, the compilation showed me what to stay away from because I couldn't do James Horner as well as James Horner. Yeah, well, that was smart of him. I mean, I had also heard that, uh, I mean, this is getting a little off topic, but whatever. I had also heard that, you know, the original plan for Star Trek VI was to basically use all classical music and, like, especially, like, the planets by Holst and everything. Interesting. Score it with that. And, you know, you can totally, I mean, you listen to that opening thing, and that's totally Mars from the planet. Have you ever heard the planets? No. It's, I mean, look, I'm not a huge, you know, classical music aficionado or whatever, but I grew up, you know, raised by a, a woman who, you know, has a degree in classical music and does it for a living. <laughs> so, you know, these things kind of seep through. But the planets, like, I cannot, re I mean, if you are into, if you like the score for Star Trek VI or any anything else, you know, I would say definitely listen to the planets the whole thing is is by this guy gustav holst and what it is 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 a symphony with like nine tracks or maybe it's eight tracks i forget because i don't know if Pluto seven seven okay wasn't sure what was considered a planet at that point in time but each one is for a different planet and it kind of like tells you know the story of that planet through music you know so, like, mm -hmm. Mars is, like, the war planet, you know. Venus is, like, the love planet, you know, that kind of thing. So, yeah, so um, he, you know, after doing Star Trek Two, well, I mean, there was Star Trek Three. I guess we could talk about that, too, right? I mean, mm -hmm. if, if you want, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, that's <laughs> fine. Yeah, no, so As he I came said, back for remember. Star Trek Three. you know. No, I mean, Star Trek Three. it was much more sort of like... Um, uplifting sort of adventurous you know it, it wasn't so much like this is you know some down and dirty action you know and, and stuff it's more like spock is in heaven and it's all good until he comes back you know that kind of stuff <laughs> i think that's pretty though i think those are the lyrics to to the you know yeah. i mean it, it really does have that you know i mean i well I think kind of the if I'm not mistaken he he t he does that at the end of 2, right? As they're like you see him on the planet mm -hmm. and it has that sort of like, you know, wispy music whatever. I think he kind of took that could be wrong here. Could be misremembering, but I think he he took that that piece from the the, the end of 2 and basically made it the theme for 3. Does this sound yeah, right? I think so. I think so. Someone's going to write in and be like, that's totally wrong. You guys, have you even seen Star Trek 2? No one has ever written us like that, Mike. Well, well, at least not that I've seen. They should, you know. <laughs> I would encourage it, you know. I'm 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 perfectly okay with people calling us on our our BS. Anyway, um so yeah, but it it is like even like when they're stealing the Enterprise and everything like that, it's just sort of more like adventurous you know like mm -hmm. if i had to compare it to something in star trek 2 it would be like when they're leaving space dock you know that sort of feeling 
And then, of course, there's the whole thing where, like, you know, David dies and stuff like that. But that's all done without any music, you know? Yeah. So, I don't know. I mean, it definitely doesn't have the... I mean, again, he saw, you know, what was going on in Star Trek Three compared to Star Trek Two, and he knew that he couldn't do the same thing again. So he made it its own thing, which is cool. And I love the fact that he didn't, like, recycle his theme from Star Trek because that would be weird too, because you had Star Trek the Motion Picture, which had its own theme, mm-hmm. and then Star Trek Two has its own theme, and now Star Trek Three, he's doing something different again. You know, instead of saying like, "Well, you know, there's one movie which has its own theme, and then there's these two which are going to have their own theme." You know. Yeah, I guess each. Now that you mention it, each movie has its own theme, except for Star Trek Five, which recycles the first one. Oh. Uh-huh. And uh, the new ones. Into yeah. Darkness uses the 2009 theme. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah. So so yeah. So I mean that's that's kind of that's kind of crazy. I, I don't know it, but he's he's done other stuff aside from Star Trek, of course. Oh, good lord, has he? <laughs> um, you know, I mean, just looking at like the stuff that he got nominated for Oscars for. You know, 1986, Aliens. That score is amazing, you know? Yeah. Even if it is a bit um, uh, similar to some other things that he's done in the past and some other things that other people have done in the past, uh, it still works extremely well. He did the score for Field of Dreams, which I have a vague feeling of, even though I don't remember (laughs) the actual music. Uh, you, you, you've you seen Field of Dreams? Uh, like when I was five or six. Like That was like my favorite movie when I was a kid. I imagine like, it was. It was baseball and and the White Sox, even though it's the guys who got you know kicked out for gambling or whatever. Mm-hmm. and Or for throwing the game, sorry. Um, so it's a sequel to Eight Men Out. It's totally a sequel to Eight Men Out. And they came out at the exact same time. Eight Men Out is the story of these guys who have been banned from baseball because, you know, they called it like the Black Sox scandal, the White Sox, called the Black Sox scandal of 1919. They actually deal with this apparently in, um, uh, what's the the gangster show on on HBO, Boardwalk Empire? Really? Yeah, because it's all tied into, you know, but whatever. So, yeah, these guys got kicked out of baseball, you know, they basically, for for throwing the World Series, right? Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, allegedly, no, 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 they definitely did. (laughs) They definitely threw the World Series. But you also have to keep in mind that, like, they were working for someone who was the worst person imaginable. They were getting paid nothing. This is a guy, I mean, shoeless Joe Jackson, right? Okay, Mm -hmm. he was was like the big guy in in this whole scandal because he was one of the greats and one of the best player ever. And he gets kicked out. And then people are like, how could you do that? Say it ain't so, Joe. That's that's the thing, right? Oh, It's like the reason why he did this, the reason why these guys were pushed to this was because Charles Comiskey was an evil man who would screw them over every chance he got. He had it written. He gave Shoeless Joe Jackson a contract and said, here, I'm going to pay you X amount of money. Sign it. And Shoeless Joe Jackson's like, I can't read. And he's like, no, don't worry. It's all good. Just sign it. And he signed it. And it was for less money than, you know, stuff like that. He would make the players pay to like he would 
dock their pay for the cleaning bill for their socks, you know? This Goodness. is this is how terrible this guy was. So what are you going to do, you know? You got you got to you got to feed your family. Anyway. Okay. Regardless of that. Yes. Feel the dreams. Totally a sequel to Eight Men Out. And he, you know, because now they're all in heaven. It's all the dead baseball players yeah. coming back to Iowa to play baseball in heaven at Kevin Costner's house. And um, as a kid, I was just like, oh, my God. Everyone's like, it's the it's the movie that makes a, a grown man cry. And I watched it again, like, a few years back. I'm like, I need to see this movie, you know. Mm-hmm. Freaking terrible! No, oh, it's the no. worst. It's the worst movie. I, I, I'm sorry. Is James Earl Jones is in it, right? Yeah, he is. Okay, yeah, he's cool in it. And and Eight Men Out, the movie that I hated as a kid. Yeah, it's awesome. Awesome. I'm I'm sure I brought it up before, but I'm in that movie. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Where, where you're like a little kid with a hat or something? Yeah, I'm I'm a kid in the crowd scenes uh, of a couple of the games. I think. Did you did, did have you seen it? I've not. No, I've not seen it since it came out on, you know, outside of VHS that I might be able to see myself. You you need you need you need to watch it again to see yourself, but then also to see an awesome movie. I do need to watch it again. Yeah. Yeah. Um but yes, the, I I actually went to the to the baseball field in Iowa last mm-hmm. summer. We drove up there cuz you can go and like play on the field, you can walk out of the corn. I'm like, this is where they made that stupid movie. Oh, I'm really glad to be out here in the middle of uh, Iowa. In the and you corner. were humming James Horner's memorable theme. That I couldn't remember, yes. That you Regardless. Remember. So yeah, he got nominated for that thing. And then in 96, he got nominated for two, for two movies that came out a month apart. There was Braveheart and Apollo 13. Now, yeah. Braveheart. He did, what was it, six, six scores in 1995? Yeah, it's not bad. It's a good. That's crazy. Good yeah, yeah. You know. Well, we got you know Braveheart, <laughs> which you said he got nominated for. Haven't Casper, which he didn't get. Yeah, haven't seen that either. You haven't seen Braveheart? No. I mean, I don't think I have, but I figured that you would. And I've seen Casper many times. John and and Matt have been giving me a very hard time about not seeing Braveheart, and I'm like, like I saw Mel Gibson's other two movies, and those things were no mm-hmm. so. You seen Apocalypto? No, freaking mess. Have you seen I, Passion of the Christ? Unfortunately, it's not very good. It's not really a good movie. No, uh, Casper. I've seen a few times. Apollo thirteen, Jade, which I'm not familiar with. Yeah, with Linda Jumanji, Jumanji, which I'm familiar with, yeah, and Balto, terrible. which I'm familiar with. I haven't seen that one. Apollo thirteen, though, space. Yeah. You know. The Final Frontier. Yeah. Oh, his score for that movie is awesome. That's an awesome movie. Um, I, 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 it's one of those movies where like, you, you, you say like that's a good movie, and then you think about it, and you're like, yeah, yeah, I remember that movie being good, and then years go by, and then you're like, maybe I should watch Apollo 13 again, and then you put it in, and you're like, this movie is freaking amazing (laughs) like how come we're not talking about this all the time why is this not up there with all the best movies you know it's so good so good yeah i actually got to meet jim lovell one time oh cool it was crazy because my my grandpa walked the appalachian trail with his son and now his son owns like a steakhouse so we went to the steakhouse 
and Jim Lovell was just sitting there at the table next to us, just eating. Wow, it's crazy. We're like, that's look, look, he's he's eating like a real person. That's so crazy. <laughs> look at that. He's talking. He's talking to his daughter about like just a normal everyday problem, and we're we're sitting there listening like this is the most fascinating thing. When in reality, like if you heard anyone else talking about it, you'd be like. This is the most boring <laughs> family problem you've ever heard of. And yet we're like, oh, my God, what do you think? Did Larry really do that? Well, I can't believe that Jane would say that about Larry. <laughs> <laughs> it was great. Anyway. <laughs> so what else did he get nominated for? Uh, he got James nom- Horner, who is the subject of this discussion. <laughs> he got nominated for uh, Titanic, which what? is where he won. Who? Titanic. Titanic. Yes. It's one of the best movies ever made. You may have What's heard of it. What's it about? It's about a ship. It sinks. Oh, yeah. I think I heard about that one. He, he won two Oscars for that one. That's where he won both of his Oscars for the score, which is amazing. Yes. I mean, like, you, you listen, there's like the part where they go back and you see they're getting on the boat. That mm-hmm. score is amazing, and that's another one where it's like I, I like with Star Trek too. It's really influenced, I think, by what you're seeing on screen. Like the the way that that scene and uh, like the other one, like when they're leaving port, is, is another one where the I'm the king of the world thing. Like mm-hmm. that, those two scenes in particular are like masterclass in terms of the score. And I think the reason is because they're masterclass in terms of the filmmaking. Like. You just look at the way that the shots are composed and and cut together and lead from one to the other, and the rhythm is there, and and the sort of visual language is there. And when you've got that going for you, I think putting a score underneath it which matches is extremely um, easy to do. I mean, I'm not saying that it's it's like, oh, yeah, I could do it. But what I'm saying is it's a lot easier to do than like a scene which is just slapped together by, you know, people who don't know what they're doing because Mm -hmm. you're taking your cues from what you're seeing. And when you're seeing a scene which is laid out perfectly, it's very easy to lay out. Again, I say very easy as if like anyone could (laughs) do it. It should be easy. It's it's easier to, to lay out your score to match. And those two scenes, I mean... Screw the rest of the movie. Like, I mean, don't because it's awesome. But, you know, just look at those two scenes and just be amazed at the filmmaking talent which is on display from like every department Mm -hmm. from direction to photography to editing to production design. It all is one cohesive whole. And, you know, the music is a huge part of it. You know, it's kind of like the glue. That, that holds it all together. Or maybe not the glue that holds it together, but maybe the icing on top of the cake or yeah. something. Titanic is the perfect storm of filmmaking. Yeah, it's awesome. You don't like Titanic? No, no, no. I do. No, it's okay. the perfect storm of filmmaking. Okay. Yeah, okay. Cool. I, I even like that uh, uh, Mr. Plinkett from Red Letter Media, uh, his review of Titanic is that it's a it's a good movie that he really enjoys. Uh, even you know, in trying to make fun of it, he has to admit that it's it's a perfect movie in that it's not too dark and not too light. It's like it, it tried to hit that middle range where everybody would like it, mm-hmm. and it hit it perfectly, square on the mark. <laughs> I guess so. I guess so. I don't know. Um, I don't know. I, I I love that movie so much. 
That's I mean, great. the one thing that was never really too fond of, um, the song My Heart Will Go On, which is what James Horner won his other Oscar right. for. Yeah. It's it's extraordinarily metal dramatic and but it works. It kind of works. Yeah. I don't know. It's it's a song to make you sad and it makes me sad. I guess to some extent, I don't know, maybe part of it is, you know, the fact that, you know, growing up in the 90s with the grunge scene, you know, and you got Nirvana and Pearl Jam and whatnot. If you're if you're going to get sort of melodramatic and some music, it's probably going to be like Don't Speak by by uh, No Doubt or something like yeah. that. Yeah. And then you've got this, which is like, this is something that my mom would listen to, although she wouldn't listen to this because, you know, like I said before, she's a professional musician and has good taste in music. But you know, you know what I mean? It's like, oh, yeah, and Celine Dion and uh... I, I cannot badmouth Celine Dion for fear of retribution from the missus. Oh, okay. I was going to say, what, from Celine Dion? Isn't she in Canada? <laughs> I'll come hit you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, you know, that's fine. <laughs> um, that song doesn't work for me. And they did it again in, in Avatar. I mean, not, not James Horner, but, well, maybe, I don't know. Did he yeah, it was James Horner. He wrote he, the, the song, though, yeah. at the end of Avatar? Yeah. It's like, apparently, James Cameron just thinks that, like, yeah, it's my, my new thing is to end movies with, like, Something that would be on on the light, you know, music station. Something that you'd Man. hear in your dentist's office. I wish that he'd go back to like Terminator and stuff. I'd love to hear he somebody would. doing like a classical, you know, love ballad song about time travel. He probably would. You know, he should have had somebody write something for Genesis. Mm. Well, after that, it was a few years, but back in 02, reteaming with uh, Ron Howard, his Apollo 13 director, he did A Beautiful Mind. Mm-hmm. I won't say Wait. what my nickname for that movie is, because it probably wouldn't make it past the censors. <laughs> Have you seen A Beautiful Mind? The movie is messed up, yes, yes. It's freaking terrible. It's yeah. not very good. Like, I was all excited to watch it in college, and everybody's, you know, I watched it on DVD or whatever. And everybody's like, oh, yeah. And I'm watching it, and I'm like, why is this popular? Yeah, it's 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 the worst. Oh, but in, in 2000, he scored uh, The Perfect Storm. Oh. Oh, mm. see? Uh, so is that the Which perfect... has a song. Okay, Is hold that on. The Perfect Storm of film scores? Also, unfortunately not. Oh. oh. Hold on, after... No, he's always, he's always written songs for... His musicals. Well, yeah, I mean, back in 1987, his his first Oscar nomination, along with Alien, was for An American Tale, where he did that mm-hmm. song, Somewhere Out There. He he did a song for We're Back, Dinosaur's Story, yeah. The Page Master, Balto, uh, Titanic, Mask of Zorro, Bicentennial Man, hmm. Perfect Storm, How the Grinch Stole Christmas. A Beautiful Mind has a song. Hmm. Troy. <laughs> and Avatar. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, um, 04 was when he did House of Sand and Fog, which was also nominated. Now, I haven't seen House of Sand and Fog. Have you? Mm-mm. 
I always wanted to because I, if I'm not mistaken, this is the third movie in the Jennifer Connelly standing on a pier trilogy. <laughs> Wait, a- am I am I, I right about that? Or okay, Jennifer Connelly from Requiem. Requiem from a Dream, yes. Right. And, and and other things. So she does stand and appear in that. I know that. At the end of Requiem. But that's the, that's part two in, in the trilogy. Part one is uh, Dark City. Yeah. Uh, so, like, after that point, really, he's, he's not doing much good stuff. Oh, well, Avatar. Uh, yeah, like, between 2001 and House and Sand and Fog, 2003... 2004, he did Troy, Flight Plan. Oh, yeah, Flight Plan. I remember that movie. Legend of Zorro, Apocalypto. The Spiderwick Chronicles, The Boy Mm. in the Striped Pajamas, Mm. speaking of melodramatic, and Avatar, finally, Mm -hmm. because Cameron's like, I'm going to work with this guy forever. Yeah. But then after Avatar, The Karate Kid and The Amazing Spider-Man? Well, you know, but I mean, I mean, you say like, he's like, oh, I, I'm I'm going to work with him forever. But that's not the case because like it, there was a huge gap between Aliens and uh, Titanic where they didn't work together because they were so under the gun with Aliens and he had to do it so quickly that James Cameron was not was a happy. terrible human being. He was not happy with the end result. You know, oh. and he's like, I know I'm never going to work with this guy again. You know? Yeah. I, I, yeah. I read somewhere that, that Horner was like, I'm never going to work with Cameron again because he's not nice words. Yeah. Which is true. We've seen the behind the scenes footage. Sure. But, but he's then intense. he does, you know, Titanic and Avatar, which is weird that they're, you know, how many ever years apart and still the most recent two of james cameron's movies yeah we don't count as documentaries right yeah yeah so he he does have one more score coming up though uh and that he's got a few apparently yeah yeah southpaw is the big one uh which is uh directed by antoine fuqua who is a brilliant filmmaker who has Mm -hmm. done things like training day and uh the replacement killers and it's written by kurt Suter who I can't believe they're not hyping this up more, but he's the, the creator of um, Sons. Yeah. Sons of Anarchy. So very interesting that that should be, that should be a pretty cool movie. Um, And yeah, I didn't realize that they had Horner doing the score, but that'll be sweet for sure. Yeah. That'll be a good end cap. It feel. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So James Horner. Yeah. He will be missed. It is it is tragic. Um, with some of the others that we've lost recently, it's been because, you know, old age or, or sickness, and, and we kind of saw it coming. But Horner's was a, a plane accident because uh, he flew his own planes, and apparently something went wrong. And it, that just makes it more tragic. Yeah. Yeah. It's disappointing. It's sad. Oh, well. Yeah. But, I mean, we've got a lot of his work and a lot of really good work out here. Yeah, he certainly uh, made the most of, of the time that he was here. And, oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, movies are a better are a better thing for his presence, for sure. 
Yeah, I don't have a breakdown of like who's the most prolific, you know, feature film person. Uh, but I imagine that he's way up there. Yeah, he's got to be. Yeah. Well, it was good talking about James Horner this week, but that's just one of the Trek topics we've been talking about on Trek FM. Here's a quick look at what you may have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.fm, Standard Orbit. These look at least like they're pretending that they're sealed. Mm -hmm. Even if they're just like beekeeper. They're still beekeeper helmets, but uh, they really the do. mesh looks more solid. They really do kind of look like electric razors. Earl Grey. We divide the ship into one of two ways. Port goes to port. <laughs> I better not see any starboard guys on the starboard phaser target practice. You guys know which side of the ship you're on. The orb. And so they cannot impart to him the knowledge that he needs in order to raise his son. And Worf doesn't want to raise a human son. Like you said earlier, he didn't get the son that he wanted. He wants to raise a Klingon son. The ready room. We knew that Spock was popular, and we knew that Dad had some fans, but we were not prepared for what we saw happening in the social media, in the print media. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think the New York Times reported that they got more hits on Dad's obituary than any other person personality in the history of the paper. To the journey! I can just hear the Earl Grey people screaming, Measure of a man! Measure of a man! <laughs> and you know what I would say to that? Death wish! Death wish! Warp 5. I remember watching Broken Bow when Enterprise first debuted when I was in high school. And I remember revisiting it now in full. And I had forgotten the fact that Future Guy had actually played an integral role from the get-go. With Silic and the Sulaban, which we'll talk about later in the show. Commentary, Trek stars. It's all of these top-notch filmmakers, like people like Walter Murch, who literally wrote the book on editing. He, like Those guys all teaming up to make a big action kids movie, I think is really cool. The 602 Club. I think he's very much recreating that THX feel, and you may, di you may disagree with it. You may not think it's, you know, it's great, but it's on purpose. He wants that world to be that way. Let me just say, conceptually, I agree with that. In terms of execution, that's where I think he failed. Literary treks. It's amazing to me, as I reread these stories, how much of it I just kind of think of as Deep Space Nine these days, even though it wasn't part of Deep Space <laughs> Nine, you know, the, the actual series. Axanar, the official podcast. It is the spirit of TOS that matters that's being captured, but it doesn't necessarily have to be the aesthetic. The aesthetic was 1966 to 1969 that had its moment, it had its time, and there's a certain amount of charm still to that, but it doesn't allow you to push the narrative forward because that type of aesthetic holds creativity back, in my opinion. Women at Warp. <laughs> She got that far without losing tons of crew members, which you know Kirk would have. She's the Ernest Shackleton of deep space. Of course she's an admiral. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out these shows and get in on the Daily Trek Talk. You'll find them on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, SoundCloud, or you can just stream from the website. You can visit trek.fm slash podcast to get all the links. Let's tell everybody where they can contact us if they'd like to share their thoughts on today's show. They can go to trek.fm slash contact. 
there's a form there. Choose Send a Show and choose Standard Orbit. That'll come to both of us by email. You can also use the tab on the left-hand column of any page to send us a voicemail using webcam's microphone. So you can, uh, you know, hum us the theme to Star Trek Three because I don't remember what it sounds like. And tell us what the rest of the lyrics are because I only remember that first phrase. Uh, you can talk to us and our other listeners at our Facebook group, The Babel Conference. In social media, you'll find our Facebook page at facebook.com slash trek.fm and on Twitter under username trek.fm. Mike, where can people find you out of orbit? Uh, you can find me right here on Trek FM doing commentary Trek Stars, where we will be covering James Horner in a few weeks, but right now we're working on Maurice Hurley. And uh, you can also find me on commentarytrackstars.com, where I do commentary track stars off topic, uh, occasionally with Drew, Yay. and commentary track star babies. Um, and you can also find me on Twitter at Mumbles3K. And you can find me on Twitter at 005, D-U-U-B-L-E-O-F-I-V-E. And you can find me on various uh, other podcasts and around the internet under that same name. Well, before we go, we'd like to ask everyone to please support our sponsor, who also brings Standard Orbit to you each week. And our sponsor for the show is Audible.com. Audible's a great way for you to read all the books you've always wanted to read but never thought you'd have time for. Audible's the premier source for audiobooks with more than 150,000 titles to choose from and new titles coming every week. From classics to current bestsellers and even some of the most famous Star Trek books like Prime Directive and Federation, Audible has something for everyone. Mike, what do you have for everyone? Well, I have uh, what is probably the most famous uh, book ever written about Titanic, and that's A Night to Remember mm -hmm. by Walter Lord. It's narrated by Fred Williams. Uh, it's unabridged, five hours and 19 minutes long. The unsinkable Titanic was four city blocks long. Really? Jeez, I didn't know that. That's a, that's as long as the Enterprise. D. That's huge. <laughs> anyway. Uh, with a French sidewalk cafe, private promenade decks, and the latest, most ingenious safety devices. But only 20 lifeboats for the 2,207 passengers and crew on board. Gliding through a calm sea, disdainful of all obstacles, the Titanic brushed an iceberg. Two hours and 40 minutes later, she upended and sank. Only 705 survivors were picked up from the half-filled boats of the ship that God himself couldn't sink. And you can read this book for free since you listen to Trek FM. It's it's not as long as Enterprise D. There's actually there's actually a, a comparison image. <laughs> what is the D a mile? I thought it was a half mile. Uh, I forget how big the D is. Is it close to the same size? No, okay, it's so the size of the uh, saucer section, maybe. Okay, so the D is like a mile long. All right, never mind. What, 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 how, how am I supposed to know this? That's the next generation thing. That's Earl Grey's department. <laughs> I don't know anything about next generation. Have you even seen that show? What is it? Is it like like their kids? Kirk's kids? Exactly. It's it's about Kirk and Rand's kids. Okay. I should watch that at some point. That's right. As a Trek FM listener, you can get a free audiobook of your choice. Along with a 30-day trial just to see how great Audible is. So give it a try today. Catch up on all those classic Star Trek books you've yet to read or that latest novel from your favorite author. Just go to audibletrial.com and sign up today. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash trek.fm. And we thank Audible for supporting Standard Orbit and Trek.fm. 
We'd also like to thank Richard Rutledge Jr. and Renee Roberts for being our associate producers this week by supporting us on Patreon. You can find Richard on Twitter at RUT8972 and Renee at MRAS underscore 1701. Yeah, thanks, guys. Thank you very much. And if you want to help them keep us in orbit, you can do that by supporting us on Patreon also. If you go to patreon.com slash trekfm, you'll find a list of donation levels where you can get things like exclusive digital goodies, early access to episodes, access to our project manager, or be an associate producer in one of our shows. You'll find out where the donations can go, things like covering the monthly cost of hosting and distribution, hiring an editor for our shows, and upgrading our equipment. Again, that's patreon.com slash trekfm, so check it out. Well, James Horner is, was sad, but next week, uh, I've heard people say that they like when we know what we're doing next week. <laughs> yeah, that's good. So next week, we'll be talking about the uh, the last comic comparison that's completed? No. No? Because we got like the Gorn thing. Oh, okay. I forgot about that one. Yeah. The last one that I've read. All right. Which is uh, Amok Time slash After Darkness. Yeah, so go off, watch Amok Time, watch After Darkness, do a double feature of Eight Men Out and Field of Dreams, and then do a triple feature of Dark City, Requiem for a Dream, and The House of Sand and Fog, and then you'll be all ready for next week. Sounds like a good idea. Yeah. Well, everybody, thanks for listening. Have a good week and keep on trekking. It is the will of Landru. Thank you.